So if you follow us, how do you even say this? At follow us at at Syntax Project. Yeah, this is why Fernando needs to go to Twitter. Yeah, I don't know. Even long, you tell him to follow us. On you can Twitter. you can go on to http colon <laughs> slash slash www.twitter.com <laughs> and find the follow button on the at Syntax Project handle. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon. This is the Syntax Podcast. I'm Fernando, here with Ethan today. What's going on, Nando? Well, we are going to be trying out something a little different. Instead of failing to prepare like we normally do for our podcasts, we intentionally didn't really prepare. And each of us is just bringing a couple random thoughts to the table that we find interesting. We hope you do, too. And we're just going to explore them one by one. So whenever you're ready, Ethan, kick us off. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might not even be that organized. We'll see if it really does go one by one. Uh, might True. just chat through <laughs> some stuff. So, okay. So the first thing on my mind over the last week is why traditional social events are just so boring. Okay. So I think everybody who's been to college has been to plenty of parties and parties so rarely have even a theme, like even a modicum of effort into organizing something that will be fun. Um, why do parties not have something more concrete, like a goal or some kind of a contest going on? Like, basically, why are parties not for me, <laughs> is, what, is what I'm saying here. So this was brought to my attention because this week is uh, Cinco de Mayo, actually yesterday, right? Um, and for anyone who's seen Arrested Development, there is a joke in Arrested Development about a holiday called Cinco de Cuatro, which, of course, means the 5th of 4, which makes no sense. But it's supposed to be the 4th of May, and it's like this new spin-off holiday. Well, I work for a company whose name is Numbers. And so in celebration of this company and of Cinco de Mayo, we celebrated Ocho de Cuatro to Cinco de Uno de Mayo on Friday. And I highly organized this event. I made sure that we had several competitions going on throughout the evening, and we were tallying points, and we chose teams. And it was very very regimented and i had a great time and from what i hear from the guests it was generally good but i just want to know why are more things not like this right so i think like for starters we should caveat that ethan is a little more organized than your average person like myself or your uber free spirit like our co-editor matt but (laughs) i still think that even me and matt can agree with ethan on um this need for a little bit of direction in aimless social gatherings, right? Like, I feel that while some of us in our day-to-day lives might like a little less regimentedness than Ethan, I think we all dislike this feeling of going to parties and just aimlessly standing around until people are either driven by the extreme awkwardness or by alcohol or by seeing a couple people they know to finally, like, socialize like normal human beings. Well, okay, well, here's what I want to do. I want to run by you all the individual ideas I have to make events arbitrarily more interesting. And I want to get a thumbs up or a thumbs down on each one of them. And these are things that I implemented on Friday. And I will vocalize the thumbs up or thumbs down since I think that will be better for our listeners. All right, so so feature number one is mandatory dress code. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. Okay, that was one of my strongest thumbs up. Okay, feature number two is dividing... Are we going to discuss this in depth afterwards or... Hit them as we uh, go. If you if you have more to say, go after it. Well, I would just say that depending on um, the mandatory dress, some people maybe ob- feel obligated to buy stuff for their wardrobe, and that's like generally a big no no. So, what if the mandatory dress code is just like must wear a jacket? Better, better. 
better. Okay. Okay, feature number two is dividing into teams to compete in some contest. Generally, big thumbs up. Big thumbs up, okay. Um, feature number three is you must bring someone with you, whether that's a date or a friend, but everybody must bring someone from the outside world that doesn't know everybody else at the party. Uh, as a hard and fast, I, not necessarily a hard and fast rule, but I can see why that'd be good. Okay. Uh, feature number four, trivia. Huge thumbs up. Okay. Yeah, that was also a huge thumbs up for me. Definitely <laughs> my favorite part of the evening. <laughs> feature number five, stack cup. I think we could agree the best drink of game. We could just move right along no, without any comments. Cup. It's the same game, except my floors are cleaner afterward. But so much less satisfying for the participants. <laughs> anyway. True. We save a lot of cups. Yeah, so anyway, I, I, uh, I just like to make a general plea to the public that we should be doing more interesting things at our parties. Parties are terrible. Anybody ever been to a cocktail party? You just want to throw yourself off the side of the building. Could not be a worse event. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, as like, personally, I enjoy generally talking to people, even people I don't know. But the initiation of that process is super rough. And... I'm I'm an extrovert and I still find that like once once you get going like it's usually hopefully if the other person's interesting it can be great but it can just be so hopefully. awkward at first and I agree um I feel like the whole point of the awkward parties and the obligatory drinking game is to put people in the same area and theoretically that will force them to socialize and what you're doing you're really just perfecting the party because you're That's what I say. More... I have perfected the party. <laughs> yeah. People say that about Ethan a lot. You're giving them a more <laughs> focused opportunity to socialize. And that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? So, um, Yeah. Count me in. Still against the mandatory dress code. But overall, I think Ethan's really on to something here. All right. What's on your mind, Nando? Well, this is something that um, history class is the short answer i know you have strong feelings about this and i do um i am a big history person and i never liked history class growing up in middle school or high school and really only in the past couple years after listening to ethan vent about it have i been able to nail down the reason that i dislike it and i think we're on the same page here so do you want to describe the terribleness of history class to you had a actually really funny anecdote, or Phil did, I think, in uh, the Sapiens pod. Uh, yeah, I think Phil was talking about memorizing the room number of, yeah. of somebody important. I forget whom. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the short answer is just that a lot of history is taught as unrelated trivia questions about people's names and the years that things happened, rather than like a cohesive chain of events. I think we could both go into way more detail on that, but that's that's the short story. Yeah, so I one of the podcasts I listened to is called Revolutions, and each chapter which is a series of 10 to 35 episodes talks about a different historical revolution and after the last chapter they just did uh mike duncan the podcast did an excellent recap where he talked about some of the trends that took place in all these or most of these different revolutions he talks about the entropy of victory where the initially victorious faction splinters with competing interests and then the faction that was initially on the losing side is able to regain its control um, due to that splintering. So the point is, it was a great... That's what history is all about. Being able to identify these trends, understand to some extent why these happen, and maybe give us some predictive or somewhat informative look at what could happen in the future. And I'm wondering, why, why did history education become so terrible? 
Well, I think it's the same reason a lot of education is bad, right? I, I don't have an exact answer, but if you uh, if you tell teachers that they have to teach a particular thing, even I mean, even if people aren't incentivized, this probably would happen anyway. But especially if you're going to tell history teachers that they have to cover certain material, the simplest for way, way for them to cover that material is to just present literally the things that happened. Because if, if their mandate is to get these things that happened into the minds of the students, it requires a lot more effort to tell the story of like why these things are connected than to just throw all the information at them. Um, it doesn't mean they're going to test better. And so mandating that... Or, or rather, incentivizing the teachers on test results probably helps with this problem. But ultimately, if you're a lazy teacher, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, well, on that note, it is also easier to assess in the sense that it's easier to find out, does a kid know what room number, hotel room number this guy stayed in yeah. versus did this guy adequately explain the events leading up to that because there's so much subject- subjectivism introduced there. So I guess that's part of it, um, but it's a shame. I think there's probably a lot of intelligent people like Ethan who just have an unnecessary hatred for history because of. I've come around, definitely. I, yeah, Ethan has. But it, it is frustrating. I think you lose a lot of kids because um, uh, maybe this sounds weird, but I think math tells its own story. So if you if you're pretty decent at math and uh, it helps to get a good teacher, but ultimately if you're good at math, you probably see the connections. It's very hard to be good at math without that, mm-hmm. um, and so you eventually kind of figure it out on your own. But that just isn't true of history. I mean, you can you can memorize things as much as you want. You can force yourself to memorize it, but um, ultimately you can you can learn it without the story. You can just memorize random facts, and that doesn't mean that you have in any way a useful understanding. But you'll do fine on the tests. So I think. This problem probably is different across fields. Yes, with the common theme that understanding the connections is really the only way to make knowledge useful, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What else you got? Uh, let's see. Got a couple things here. So, okay. So, one thing I'd like to talk about is is couscous, couscous, which we spell C U S space C R I S E. So. I have been watching quite a lot of NBA playoffs recently, and the Boston Celtics have these shirts that say Couscous. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I spent the first round of the playoffs every day wondering what Couscous was. And I was like, is it supposed to say, like, Cuz Christ? Is it, like, in some way a Christian, uh, (laughs) like, motto? But no, it's just Couscous. And for anybody who hasn't seen these shirts, I highly recommend you Google them. But it's a very large C. Uh, two lines worth of a C, and then on the top line it says U.S., and on the bottom line it says R I S E. So it looks like the C is applied to both of these words. For context, I believe these are the shirts that all the Celtics fans get when they attend the home playoff games. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So over and over, I was like, what does this mean? Maybe it's something in Latin. You'd think I would have looked it up. But one day in the second round, I was like, oh, it says C like s-e-e but this the spelled as the letter c us rise and i was like first of all that doesn't even make any sense <laughs> i don't i don't even get why that would be a good sports slogan but also it's so confusing it is it is laid out so poorly so if you're going to have something that requires that much cognitive effort to determine make it a good slogan it's not any good and, and what I can't figure out is the obsession with sports teams to have these sort of catchy phrases, especially when they're not catchy. Um, 
Because most of the time, they're just things you put on t-shirts. I don't know why your t-shirts can't say Go Celtics. So I'm just going to throw a couple other things out there that pop into my head. So um, the Washington Capitals have a, a saying, Rock the Red, because they wear red. That's not any good either. Um, and I so eventually I started thinking, uh, that one sticks in my mind because I listened to a Washington, D.C. radio show that brings it up. Um, but I eventually racked my brains until I could think of one that I really liked. And the Milwaukee Bucks in the early 2000s said, Fear the Deer. They still say that. Uh, but they don't really. It's not on any of their official merch, as far as I can tell. I'm pretty sure they have warm-ups that say Fear the Deer. Okay. Well, in that case, I'll give that one back. But my understanding is it is not in nearly as much use as it was in the early 2000s. And I don't know why teams wouldn't at least find one of these that works and stick with it permanently. Because the good ones are so few and far between. So anyway, I've, I've ranted. What well, do you think? so Rock the Red... Rock the Red at least has the benefit of being alliterative, which makes it memorable. And from a marketing point of view, I feel like memorableness, in, even in the absence of all other merit, is valuable in itself. Um, and that truly really shows how bad the sea, the coos crease is. Because it's not yeah. alliterative, and if you make it alliterative, as in coos crease, it just makes it way more complicated. <laughs> Um, yeah, very poor. And we do need to give a shout out to the Utah Jazz shirts that say, take note. Yeah, that's a killer. is an excellent blend of, obviously, a play on jazz. Um, their logo now has the J and the jazz kind of looking like a musical note. And... And it has a basketball at the bottom. And it does have a basketball. It's, it's a great logo, yeah. And is... Like, take note is just, I mean, maybe it would be random if it didn't have those jazz connotations, but it's not a bad thing to have for a kind of, like, low-key, underdoggy team in the NBA playoffs. So, yeah. exceptional, yeah. exceptional, um, as is, while, while we're on the topic, I might as well just say the alternate uniform where they have that stone arch on the court. Is Even though it's not their team colors. Not at this all is, This is a colors. whole other topic of conversation. I don't really get the thing where your alternate colors are just not the same as your regular colors, but the Jazz uniforms are so good that I think we can forgive it. Yeah, also it's interesting how now it's a thing for there to be court uniform pairings because that stone arch on the yeah. court isn't there when um, when they wear their normal colors, so... If anybody doesn't know what this is, uh, Google the, I would I think probably Utah Jazz Mountain uh, Court or Utah Jazz Arch Court should yeah. bring it up on Google. They actually put kind of a, a quiet but interesting design on the side of their court as a symbol of Utah where they're from. Yeah. We're, really, we're really channeling our inner Zach Lowe, who's our favorite basketball writer, by spending an unnecessary amount of time on the aesthetics. I don't yes. know how to say that word of basketball but eh, i don't regret it all right give us another topic here nando all right this is going to be this is going to be a, a big one um so do you remember i texted you a couple weeks ago when i discovered that a circle or yeah circular object that's rotating at near the speed of light has the circumference to diameter ratio is no longer pi um, mm -hmm. Because of length contraction, the circumference is actually a little bit shorter. So we're gonna get into why that's why any of us should care about that in a second. 
But I'm curious. Good, because guess, I have yet to find out. Guess what What was the first thought you think I had when I discovered this fact? Um, I got nothing. I thought that this means we can celebrate Pi Day on multiple days of the year. And wow. I was so excited. Extremely How much variability excited. is there? Can I'm it go sure. all the way down to like 1.1? Can we start at the beginning of the year? I'll, I'll have to run the math on that one. Um, but mm. hopefully, hopefully. So I was very so, excited about this, really for that reason. But So Ethan's response to this text was something along the lines of, there's a lot of, when we you know study physics and look at the equations, it describes a lot of solutions that are technically true but we wouldn't see that effect in real life. Something along those lines, can you clarify a little bit what Yeah, sort of. I, I guess there's a point where the, there are these things that we can describe mathematically, but I'm not even sure we could ever be in a position to witness them in the classic sense of our like our own senses. So these things shouldn't even make any sense to us. So I always remember as a kid, I would, I asked my parents this question probably 30 times. I don't know why this sticks in my mind. I was probably like five. I was, I always said, what would happen if you threw water on the sun? Like if you threw a cup of water on the sun and over and over, I got the response. I, I forget which of my parents this was, but one of them certainly would always say you couldn't get it there. Like it would already have evaporated. So this is this is like a senseless question. I, I never got over that. I was always like, yes, but what if we could? And I mean, it's still kind of an interesting thought exercise, but I feel the same way about some of these other things that like, because we can never be in a position to observe them, the results will always be counterintuitive because what we understand, the way we understand what length and circumference and radius is, isn't really what it is in a mathematical sense. It's only what it is so far as we have witnessed it. So we, we talked about quantum spin in the past, and actually I think spin might not be an example of this. I may have mistakenly cited it, because spin apparently is just not really the correct word for what's happening. One but of our are... syntax audience has told me that he plans to write an article um, diving into that a little more, and I think gently correcting some of my statements in the oh, article. Oh, that'll we'll be interesting. Um, we'll see. What I... What I do want to end my bit on this with is, um, so the, uh, the theory of relativity says basically as objects get closer and closer to the speed of light, as you try to accelerate them, some of the energy, and it, it, this happens more as you get closer, some of the energy that you put into accelerating them actually becomes mass. Unless I'm totally misunderstanding it, th this is how I believe it goes. It actually becomes mass, and that is always happening. Like, even at regular speeds, but it's so unbelievably tiny that we don't witness it. And so all of these things that start to violate our intuitions are true at the edges, mm -hmm. but they're really always true. We yes. just never perceive them. So that's, yes. that's probably kind of a rambling, vague sense of my thoughts. But I think that's why these aren't really, like, true to humans in the same way they're true mathematically. Well, so this is the um, more relevant line of questioning that this prompted and it kind of it boils down to the whole like what is reality which i just hate that phrase it sounds like we're about to go on a stupid drug addled discussion but we think about like newtonian laws of physics the physics we all learned in high school and none of that is a particularly 
true way of describing how objects interact, right? Like, there's so much going on that that's not yeah. taken into account that, like, you could say that this is just not a good description because it misses a lot of things. But that being said, it is more than accurate enough to describe things that go on in our daily life. And even, like, for... I mean, not just in terms of, like, throwing a baseball, but even planes and stuff like that can be described with the with classical physics. And it makes you just think that the whole idea of a true description of a system is kind of totally subjective. Um, like, See, I wouldn't say that. So here's... What you're describing is something I've, I've thought a little bit about before. And the way I look at it is there's always a better model. So Newtonian physics is really good in aggregate situations. Really, really good. Especially when you get to the level of like planets. As soon as you start averaging out all the tiny errors that it makes at the atomic and even like small particle level, it's really accurate. But you need, a, you need a more specific model if you're going to go lower because it makes big assumptions because otherwise it would be impossible to calculate these answers. Mm-hmm. Like we'll never have the computing power to figure out every single atom in Neptune and how Neptune is going to move. So we make these averages. We say on average these particles will behave this way. But as you go lower, you need better models. And I think it's highly probable that as we continue to go lower and lower in physics, we keep needing to revise our models. But every model is wrong. Is, is sort of uh, a necessary conclusion of this theory. Like, all the models have errors in them. It's just, what are you trying to find and how much error can you settle for as a trade-off for computability? Yes, I completely agree. But it's interesting in the context of what you guys, well, what Yuval Harris talks about in Sapiens and you brought up in the pod about, like, money being this fiction. And it's true in the sense that, like, money doesn't really have inherent value but it's viable because we all agree it is. But the models that, at least some economic models, are valid and true in the sense that you can use them very well to um, measure things that happen in our world, despite the fact that it's all fake. And I think that's just... So you think that's the same thing? Because I'm not sure I do. Um, I'm not sure that I do either, but... Just the idea, like, Yuval Harris is very quick to describe the economy as a global fiction. And the way he describes it, he's technically correct, but I think it may give people the wrong impression um, because the fact is that doesn't discredit the models that are built of our economy or of money in general. Yeah. And That's I think a really good point. readers and listeners might, um, might miss that distinction so what that reminds me of is uh tons and tons of people will uh, at least certainly a lot of people that i know will basically make fun of economics as a science because it's it's quite bad at predicting certain things so in the last 30 to 50 years behavioral economics has become a lot more popular and behavioral economics violates uh, basically uh, explains things that we couldn't explain before and contradicts classical economics in some ways, theory-based economics. Uh, and a lot of people will criticize economics as like being all made up and not very predictive because it fails so much in these areas, citing the things that behavioral economics is starting to get better at. But I think we're just refining the model in economics the same way we're refining the model in physics. So 
It would be like if somebody said physics was trash because we couldn't describe the atomic level back in the 50s and 30s. Although I guess we were just starting to be able to do that. And I think all the sciences really exhibit this behavior. Um, I'd have to think about how it applies to history, but your example of money is, is pretty good, obviously. Is the also, an, economics here. an interesting fact, like, or thing to take into account is when you think about behavioral economics, that's aggregating the decisions of maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in the economic system being studied. And yeah. the, I mean, I don't know how many atoms are in my hand, but probably orders and orders of magnitude more than that. So that's why, even though, even if you are aggregating 10 million people's actions, that is not nearly as good an aggregation as when we consider how my hand pushes against a ball, because yeah. we're averaging so many more. It's a much better average of what all the electrons in my hand are doing, because there's so many more of them. Yeah. And it's interesting you think of like a country or the world as being a huge sample size kind of depends on what what your perspective is. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a pretty good case. In general, these like high-level models are almost always averages at the low level, even if we don't realize it yet, which mm -hmm. is pretty interesting. So like, what, what are we looking at right now as a model that really is not a true description, it's just a convenient description? I don't have any answers to that, but it is kind of worth toying with, I think. Right. I'm sure if we sat here in like two minutes of silence, we could uh, think of something. It would just be really awkward for our listeners. So Yeah, our, our podcast down. quality is just too high for that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, what else What else is on your mind? So um, another, another tangentially physics-related topic. Um, how much tracking in your life is too much tracking? So I, I think most people that know me uh, are aware that I am pretty obsessed with tracking things. For several years, I think from sophomore year of college until about 10 months ago, maybe, um, I kept a log every day of 10 to 20 bullet points of what I had done. And by the end of that stretch, I think I was up to 300 pages of logs. And it was probably taking me more than 10 minutes a day, which maybe sounds trivial, but I, I think that's a pretty big outlay of time in aggregate. But I also think that there's huge returns from knowing what you've done, knowing what's going on in your life, being able to reference this again, even if you only look it up once or twice a year. But how do you measure those things? How do you say, like, this is the sweet spot. This is how much I should be tracking about my life. So another example of this is people tracking their workouts. So you write down how many reps, how many sets you do, um, or even if you do cardio, write down your times. But the problem with all of these things is that you, uh, I see Fernando shaking his head, you uh, have to disrupt your own routine to do this tracking. So the analogy for me was the uncertainty principle. If everyone's familiar with that, it's basically the idea that uh, you can't observe something without disturbing it. And I think that applies in tracking your own life. Now in physics, it's like a, it's like a necessary truth. In your own life, it just kind of happens. If you're going to track what you do during the day, that's going to take more time out of your days. If you're going to track how many sets you did, you're going to take time away from the sets in your workouts. So I don't know. What do you think? What's your opinion on tracking? Well, other than occasionally at different times, like tracking workouts, I have done much less tracking than you. So you're in a nice position of having experienced both sides, sort of logging every day versus not logging every day. Whereas I can only speak from 
not blogging every day and saying that it seems to be working out all right, but I don't have any. So have you ever considered blogging anything? Mm, nope. Well, I shouldn't say anything. Like, Okay, so first of all, on your point of like the uncertainty principle and that observation disturbs the system, you're looking at the time it takes. I've, I've noticed there's also the... It disturbs your, and not necessarily in a negative way, but it changes your subjective experience of whatever it is you're tracking. So oh, for sure. I, I counted that as one of the pros, yeah. So I definitely felt that um, playing golf in high school, where having to play competitively, track how I'm improving, or in my case, staying stagnant over the years, I just enjoyed the sport or the activity a lot less <laughs> because I became conscious of, am I scoring better? Am I improving, making improvements I need to? And that really took a lot of enjoyment out of it for me. And See, I that's find interesting. a similar thing for running where like I prefer to never know the times that I'm running because for me, running to some extent has some relaxing aspects to it. And if I finish a run, and it will be on my mind just by the fact that I tracked it, that I wasn't as fast as I normally am, that would kind of bother me and make the overall experience of running less enjoyable. So, um, and for one more example, like working out, when I did log my workouts, you know, there's different times, like at the end of a long day, or sometimes if you lift early in the morning, where you just won't, you'll work, try as hard, but you won't be able to lift the same yeah. weight. And then there are times I'd be like, oh, I'm not going to work out because I know I'm tired and my mind is really crappy. And so I avoided it because of that. So for me, those are the disturbances to the day-to-day -day routine, more so than the time it takes to log these things that have made me shy away from from tracking day-to-day. Uh, -day it's very interesting because I feel like this starts to highlight the difference in the, maybe not the nature of perception, but just like personality style. So for me, I don't get the I don't really get any enjoyment out of workout unless I'm seeing how it compares to past things. Like I'm only there for the improvement. This is true in a lot of things in my life. Like I need to track it because I need to see that I'm making progress because otherwise it feels like a waste. And uh, that's why I'm still fairly obsessive about tracking run times. And I don't think I could give that up. So I think I guess part of it is is it good for your subjective experience? But I do think that's different from, is it good for your objective goals? Those are like two different things, you know? So for me, the enjoyment of running is actually net, is actually predicated on my time tracking. But is my actual improvement? And in running, I think it probably is. But in other parts of my life, I'm not sure those two things are necessarily the same. And I look at both of them. So, so one other thing... It's not like I enjoy tracking my finances, but I track my finances very carefully. And that is purely for an objective optimization goal, basically. But am I spending time tracking my finances every two weeks? Probably takes me 30 minutes. That I could just do something else. I could like improve my skills in some kind of skill, maybe web development. Um, and maybe that would boost my salary. Improve your so skills at some kind of skill. You could also maybe improve your some kind your of wording. <laughs> it won't be grammar. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, what if I'm allocating time toward this for the tracking that could be better used 
to actually improve the underlying causes of what I'm tracking. Right, and that's generally the analysis you need to make. Like, you kind of have to follow each path to as much of a logical conclusion as you can reasonably guess at. So the path of not tracking your finances might be improved web skills or whatever it is, but also possibly um, losing track of certain things and starting to worry about um, making sure your money's allocated properly. And non, so that may not mean that you're going to be losing money because as long as your general spending habits are responsible, but it could mean that at the end of a couple months, you're just going to end up spending two hours trying to put the pieces together of what you did for the past um, yeah. two months rather than a little bit of time every week or two. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, I don't know. You never don't know. know. You kind of need to know what your what are the things you worry about? What are the things that maybe you need to worry about more? Um, obviously, it's, it's tough because it's, for every person. It's, it's tough to bounce between uh, two different styles for logging mm-hmm. things, I find. So unlike other things in your life, you really can't do what is basically a test. Can't do right. two months of tracking, right. two months of not tracking. Because right. what you learn in the tracking overflows into the not tracking and mm-hmm. vice versa. I don't know. I'll give it some more thought. I'll try... Uh, Try not writing anything down for six months. No, absolutely <laughs> no way that happens. Don't believe that at all, but keep us updated. All right. You got something else? Sure. Um, we Every time that one announcer on the playoffs, I don't even know his name, um, but even I have I'm losing guy, track of all their names. They all sound the same. The one we really dislike. Uh, yeah. Oh, that one guy, yeah. yeah. Oh, this is so unhelpful to listeners. Well, well so... There's several of the like older white guys who just kind of blather, and they all sound similar. So one is Kevin Harlan, and one is um, well, Mar- I like Marv Albert. I like Kevin I don't, McHale, but, but so Kevin McHale is good. What this one guy does is like <laughs> what really bothers me is he always says like "all right" as if he's about to lead into another insightful point, but I think that's actually just kind of his filler word. So I'm going to make <laughs> yeah. up an example. Like, um, DeMar DeRozan is 2 of 10 today, all right? And so you think he's about to drop some wisdom on why DeRozan's doing so poorly. And then he goes, and he scored four points. I'm like, wow, I could have done that <laughs> math myself. <laughs> and I haven't watched annoying. this guy as much as you have, luckily. It's very annoying. And, well, that's kind of the whole topic I'm going to bring up here. Like, there are definitely some announcers that are – Maybe not objectively, but the consensus agrees are better. And for the most part, those are the ones yeah. that end up on national TV versus local stations. So there is some... Oh, I don't even know if that correlation is Okay, maybe strong. not, maybe not. But <laughs> yeah, I take that back. But there so, okay. is consensus Who can we even better. name, right? So we know the NBA right. the best. Yes. I bet I could get like three. Like Gus Johnson, uh, Jeff Van Gundy. Kevin McHale. My Kevin McHale mostly. Um, I, that might be the end of my list. So I really like Clyde. Frazier, Mike Green is okay, but I like Mike Green. I really like Clyde Frazier, but I don't know if that's just an acquired taste from watching the local Knicks podcast. <laughs> yeah, haven't watched him. Yeah, because that would involve watching the Knicks. So I don't blame you. But the number but, of announcers that are good is just so low. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's where but you're going. The point. No. So I'm wondering, is there like. What makes a good announcer good? Like we can agree to some, to a decent extent, who are good announcers, 
um, and who aren't. But why are some of them good? That's kind well, of the question. Yeah, I mean, it's it's different depending on who you are, right? So if you're like a crotchety old guy who played the game, you want an announcer who all the time is like, well, that shot just took guts. Look, <laughs> look at the... I don't even know what words they use. They're all garbage. As soon as people start talking about like the, the clutch gene, it's like, why are we even listening to this? Uh, and then there's the one guy, who is it? I think it's Chris Weber, who's always like, and now what DeRozan is thinking about. It's like, you don't know what any of the players are thinking about. You're just <laughs> applying your own personality in all of the players. Uh, and th- it's just terrible because they're just spewing sports cliches. And very few announcers are actually savvy in, like, the science of the game, which is admittedly, like, a very nerd thing to be interested in. And I, I think even the announcers we think are good, especially from my perspective, because, like, 95% I think we should be paying attention to analytics, not a lot of these foolish uh, history of the game sort of deals. Uh, just nobody has made it there. Even the ones we think are good right now are not really very knowledgeable in those fields, and they just happen to be the best of a very bad bunch. This is going to be super unhelpful because I can't remember who I'm thinking of right now, but there. Were, oh, it was during uh, the Celtics game last night where um, hopefully people watched, but Coach Brad Stevens, uh, it was an out-of-bounds play. He drew up the play. They weren't able to get the ball in bounds, so he called a timeout. And then he made an adjustment based on the defense that he saw to attempt to get Al Horford the ball for the game-winning layup. And the announcers pointed out that he got them to clear out the paint and force a switch so a smaller guy was on Al Horford. And I was like, this is great announcing. This is what I wanted to know. This is why yeah, that is actually good. useful. And I wouldn't – I probably wouldn't have noticed it, but I would like to notice these things. Um so a good example of this in football is Chris Collinsworth, who I think has been unfairly maligned because he kind of has a a tough voice to listen to, <laughs> but he is probably the most uh, stylistically savvy announcer in the NFL. And he will describe what coverage schemes mean to the offense and things like that. And that's what I want to hear. Like, what what's really the tactics happening in this game and why are these decisions being made the way they are and what are the little things that i can't notice like i know the players are excited you telling me that the other team has more heart than my team is not in any way useful (laughs) it's just irritating and so i don't know why anybody benefits from that but it does seem like those people are popular or at least have the credibility that they don't get fired like phil sims for anybody that watches football literally could not be worse i actually don't think it's possible to have a worse (laughs) announcer than him and I don't understand how these people still announce games. I don't watch as much football anymore. Maybe Phil Sims doesn't. And if, if so, good for you, football fans. But it is just brutal, especially in the NFL. The I think so. A couple of things I think are kind of valuable. One, I think the historical anecdotes can be interesting. Um, yeah, just interesting from like a that's a fun fact point of view. And I do think that great tandems like Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson are the best example of guys who are not necessarily really good announcers on their own, but I think Jeff is pretty good, but together they are together. They're significantly better. Um, and then we might as well shout out to the TNT broadcast crew while they're out here. Oh yeah. Because I probably wouldn't enjoy listening to any of them if they were like riding solo, but that halftime show is 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 must watch television. So one, one really interesting thing about, announcing crews this is i have to think how i want to start this so i 
have a very negative opinion of ex-players who are involved in coverage of sports. And I don't think that all ex-players are bad. But the problem is that ex-players are given so much leeway compared to non-players that we get tons of terrible ex-players being involved in coverage. And, uh, I mean, you see, so I think Barkley and Shaq are so fun on that show, right? But Barkley's an idiot. Barkley will yell about how analytics doesn't exist. And he's, he's several times said things about the Rockets where he said they just have good players. That's why they're winning. It's nothing about analytics. No, the point is how they gather these players. Like, it, taking a nuanced and quantitative understanding of the game is how you get better at things. And every team has analytics in the front office. Barkley went off on three-point shooting as a trend I think the second year the Heat won the championship. And the, the final four teams left in the NBA were all in the top ten in three-point shots attempted in the season or something. I, I need to look up that stat to get that right. But in general, these people are just yelling about nonsense. And no one, no one in charge of hiring people seems to have given up on ex-players. But I don't think we should be giving them particularly more benefit of the doubt than we do non-players. Like, people knowledgeable about sports right now are the best people talking about sports. And that is kind of a problem. Like, I would like to hear from ex-players if they actually understood the things about the game that players don't need to know. And so many of them have not even tried it. Yeah, I think the one reason for giving them the benefit of the doubt is that they are in a media job with much less years of media experience than an equivalent announcer of the same age. That's a good point. So, I think there's a learning curve. I mean, I think Jalen Rose is getting better as an announcer. I haven't and, watched him in a long time. I was actually um, going to bring him up. Well, he's, he's, he's not an bad. announcer, but on his on show. Talking and, head. Um, yeah. yeah. That being said, my the bar that I had him at initially was extremely low. So, But it just goes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, broadcasters are trained in the field, or if not formally trained, they spent years kind of rising in the ranks, being around good and bad broadcasters in a way that people who did a different career playing basketball for 15 years weren't. So, But even even uh, the last generation of sports commentators who weren't players have the same problems. So you look at a show like PTI, Wilbon and Kornheiser. Um, I actually follow Kornheiser outside of the PTI show. And so I, I listen to his radio show every day. And I think his radio show is great. It's really fun. But it also exposes the fact that he knows very little about sports. Yesterday on the show, he said that uh, Jalen Brown was Boston's second best player after Kyrie Irving, <laughs> which is obviously untrue. Like anybody who watches any basketball knows Al Horford is way better than Jalen Brown. And these are just people who turn on the TV for three hours at night, if that, and kind of know a little bit about all of the sports and in general are less knowledgeable than a regular person with a regular job who watches one sport with some dedication. And so no wonder the coverage is terrible. And, like, ex-players are better than the PTI hosts, so I guess if that's the bar, then they're doing fine. But we just, in general, need a more rigorous standard of, like, smart people talking intelligently about sports. That is not what we have. Well, I mean, anyone who complains about the issues with the media, it's like, it's because people people listen, people watch, people read these yeah. stuff. And so really it's your fault even for listening to this radio show. That is true. It is my own fault. <laughs> Although sometimes I fast forward the sports sections. <laughs> yeah, it is brutal. All right. Uh, how far in are we? We're like 45 minutes. Uh, all right. You want to do one more thing? Yeah. What do you got? Let's see. All right. So here's, here's the thing. This is going to sound a little bit like a Seinfeld routine. 
what's the deal with swimming? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so I've morning. been taking. What's that? I swam this morning. It was uh, unpleasant. I keep I keep trying to get into it. So I think, as you know, I've been taking swimming lessons, and this has just made me think a lot about the world of swimming. Oh, uh, well, I, I have been taking swimming lessons, and. Uh, I have an ambition to do a triathlon at some point, and also I run quite a bit, and I enjoy doing some competitive cardio, and I anticipate that someday I will want to do something that is easier on my joints. So, swimming lessons. Now, this this is really a weird thing about swimming, and I think that so many people are raised in the culture of like swimming is an Olympic sport and a thing that we pay a lot of attention to that that no one thinks it's weird, but swimming has like four different strokes, right? It has a freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke, butterfly. Running doesn't have four different strokes. You just run. We just tell people to run as fast as they can. But like what the equivalent of of all these strokes would be really weird in running because breaststroke is like objectively slower than freestyle. Like the fastest swimmers or the fastest times are in freestyle. And so it makes me think of like what if you, you know, what if in the Olympics there were a sport where you like had to carry a heavy backpack and tie your legs together and hop as fast as you can. And that was like called the the free style of running or the heavy style of running. And, you know, we had four different ways of making people run and three of them were just randomly making it more difficult in weird ways. Like it's not a thing we would do. And it, I guess the the nearest equivalent to this is actually speed walking where it's like, we're going to tell you to run, but you always have to have one foot on the ground, which is just weird. But I just don't get it. Like in retrospect, I don't think we should have four of these. We should be like, go out there and swim however you want. And the fastest person wins. It's just I, weird. I was wondering when I saw your outline, what does breaststroke is basically speed walking mean? Yeah. And now I know. <laughs> and I totally agree. I don't, I really don't have much to add to this because I think you covered it perfectly. Like, why are we, why are we limiting these? Why are we placing well, the only, the only other thing to talk about is I think it's just very amusing to think of the, the possible variations of traditional racing sports. Oh, so like, that's what is already it on done. A bike? That's already done. Potato yeah? sack okay, race. Like what? Yeah, but that, okay. Oh, potato sack is a really good one. Because originally I was thinking three-legged race, and I thought, no, that's not quite the same because it requires another person. But potato yeah. sack is really good. The so egg, potato sack the racing relay, is the one butterfly. Of the, one of the best events that's yeah, relay also the... really stupid <laughs> <laughs> realize okay i don't know whoever invented realize realize are just dumb they don't make any sense everybody just compete on your own then why do we need to find out how fast four people from the same country are instead of one person from the same country? uh i'm not entirely convinced and then we also introduced this random thing about the baton like what if we had a race where you had to run the 400 as fast as you can while juggling and not dropping any balls like, that's yeah, kind of how the baton Yeah, but is. that's just like, why do we make people dribble in basketball? Yeah, but it's a little bit different because these other sports are obviously contrived. Like, basketball and mm. football and hockey, even though they're old, like, they're designed to be optimal for entertainment. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've conceded that. But we, everybody has this sense of, like, there being something magical about the original sports, the racing sports. And there isn't. They're still weird like all the others. I think, I think people do have that idea. Like, the, the ancient Greeks also swam weird strokes. I don't know if that's true, but... <laughs> I'm sure. Potato sack race is very popular in ancient Greece. Everybody says the ancient <laughs> Greek ra- runners ran naked, but actually, no, <laughs> they were wearing potato sacks. Yeah, um, I definitely hope that we see that in the Olympics as well as, you know, NCAA track soon. Um, I think that's we've good. spouted enough BS for one episode. 
Yeah, this was really fun, actually. I got yeah. a couple bullet points left over, but we can we can roll those over to next time. Perfect. Um, I hope to have an article out this week and hopefully another one next week. So if you follow us at Syntax Project, right? That's our Twitter handle. That is correct. So if you follow us, how do you even say this? At Follow us at, at Syntax Project. Yeah, this is why Fernando needs to go to Twitter. Yeah, I don't know. Even Wong, you tell him to follow us. On you can Twitter. you can go on to http colon <laughs> slash slash www.twitter.com and find the follow button on the at Syntact Project handle. And then Good luck. whenever we stop being lazy and actually get articles out, you will be the first to know. And anything coming up you would like to show out there, Ethan? Yeah, I uh, so I have been mulling for a while this idea of an article on traffic, and I would like to embed something on the website uh, that would allow people to tweak traffic patterns and change basically uh, the number of cars on a road or the width of a road or the speed the cars are going. Turns out this is a little bit more difficult than I expected, but I do have that uh, actually on my alternate desktop here. I would like to be working on that in the next week or two and maybe get that out as a fun little thing to play with. There you go. All the probably more information than you could ever want about traffic. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that's about it. So thanks to everybody for listening. Got anything else to say, Fernando? Nope. Thanks and see you next time. All right. <laughs>